Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here with Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a podcast producer, and Catherine Legrave, Lilith Marcus, and Laura Redman, all of whom are editors on our site. We're actually pre-taping this episode, which is not normal for us, but we're doing it now because it's the end of the year. People go on vacation. We can't track them down, and we can't Skype in the whole world, so... We have assembled a cast of thousands. We're going to review the year 2016. We're going to talk about some travel predictions. We're going to talk about big travel news. So it's a looking back podcast. And maybe I think if we could identify what are the three biggest travel pieces of travel news, the travel news stories that were the biggest ones this year, what would those be? Well, let's just say 2016 was rough, right? I mean, hard year. We are happy to say goodbye to 2016. And beyond news, politics, whatever, I mean, travel stories, we had to deal with Zika. Zika kind of dominated our coverage. I think, Catherine, I I joked you were on the Zika beat for a while. But I I think what's interesting about Zika is it seemed like it was going to transform the way we traveled and was going to be a really present danger. But now it seems to have receded. But I don't know if the resorts have rebounded, if the areas that were affected by Zika warnings Mm – whether they are still feeling the hang of it. Does, does it, has anyone else has anyone else noticed that? Well, I know I have so much anecdotal evidence of people canceling trips that, you know, even within our small circles, that has to count for something. And you know, we haven't seen the effect of this on Singapore as much as we have on, say, Puerto Rico, where you just were, Lilith. I think San Juan's taken a pretty hard hit this year. I did not pay a lot of money for my hotel. I'll say that much. Right. Yeah. And, Which uh, is great, but also very sad. I mean, it's at some point when you start seeing hotel rates being overly reasonable, you think those poor people, because they're really hurting to be able to cut it that much. So we should we, we shouldn't gloat too much when we get a crazy hotel steal because you think, oh, I, I should spend a bit more money in the restaurants. Or we do need again. We said this many times. If you are not pregnant or looking to get pregnant. Please go to the places that need our tourism dollars that have those Zika warnings because they need to keep going. And I think what was interesting with Zika, too, is that it dovetailed with Brazil during the Olympics. And then it became an even bigger story because there were sort of two combined into one. You got stories about athletes saying that they weren't going to go, people pulling out at the last minute, unofficial bug spray sponsor signing up for the Olympics (laughs) for the first time in history. I feel like that was a big deal before the Olympics, but then when it actually happened, like I, I don't feel like we heard of anybody who had a problem with Zika during the Olympics. Like, nobody got sick, as far as we know, and you'd think it would have gotten a lot of attention. Yeah, I mean, I did find it kind of telling that some of the athletes who were making the biggest stinks and like getting the most press about not going were people who were not favored to do well in whatever their event was. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like the, the sort of infrastructure problems in Rio once the Olympics were underway became a bigger story. That was what you would hear about. Yeah, I think before the Olympics, it was people who were worried about Zika and not sure for health reasons if they should go. Afterward, it became things like Ryan Lochte. Yeah. I was down in Brazil, in Rio, for Traveler to do some TV segments, and, and it was very interesting to be there. And I think both of those challenges were overblown. I think I did slather myself in insect repellent, but I just get bitten a lot anyway, so I would have done that. Zika or otherwise. And I think the infrastructure challenges, being in Rio for the Olympics, I didn't feel that Rio wasn't ready. I felt like Rio was a developing city that had taken on a big project. So it was a bit frayed at the edges. It's not going to be as seamless as London and expecting it to be is, 
is unfair, I guess. Do you know what I mean? Is it, that... it also wasn't Sochi either, where journalists arrived at half-done hotels. I think that was a major story at the very beginning of the Sochi Olympics. We didn't really hear that kind of story coming out of My Rio hotel was either. nicer in Sochi than it was in Rio, but that's really? <laughs> on, on the other hand, there were a lot of reports about the sort of condition of the water. I think that's the one that stuck with me the most, is that they had made efforts to deal with it, but the efforts were sort of not catching up with the problem itself. And there were stories during the Olympics with at least what looked like visuals. I know this was before the fake news explosion on Facebook, as far as I know. And like, it was clear that there was a problem. They had cleaned it up to some extent. And, and people did get sick. There were some athletes, yeah. some of the, the aquatic athletes who were the distance swimmers, those kind of people. There were people getting sick. And I must admit, having been to Rio and really explored a lot, I wouldn't have jumped in that water. Yeah. I wanted to enjoy the beaches. I wanted to think of the water as a, as a, as a, as a sort of picturesque thing rather than a useful thing. And I'm really interested in sort of examining the long-term effects of Olympics on cities once the games are over. I think I've seen so many cities where buildings have fallen into disrepair, where they're supposed to become low-income housing and they never do, or nobody wants to move into them. I mean, I'm a proponent of the Olympics should be in the same place every year and that we shouldn't have to throw so much money into building a bunch of shiny new things. But I don't know if that's ever going to happen. What I heard when I was in Rio, the drumbeat that was repeated over and over, even among more well-to-do karaoke's, was they've spent too much money on this. This is money that could have been spent elsewhere because the challenge is Rio snagged its Olympic perch when Brazil was awash in money and it had to execute it when it wasn't. So I think there was a bit of friction and that was the most accurate part of the reporting to me was I don't think the Cariocas were unabashedly thrilled because they were counting the pennies that it was costing. Yeah, I mean, I remember living in New York City when we were making the Olympic bid. And all everybody talked about was how much money it was going to cost, what the heck we were going to do in terms of building housing, where in the city could we possibly fit all of the Olympians. And when they made their decision to give the Olympics, I think that was when it went to London. One of the things the Olympic Committee said is that people in New York seemed to really hate the idea and that they didn't want locals who were going to be hostile. And I had never been prouder of my city in my life. <laughs> we went from sort of one big, we can come back to the Zika story, we went from one of the big travel stories of the year to another, right? Rio was another one. And I'm, I'm wondering, Mark, you were there. What evidence did you see of what they had built outside of just the arenas? Because that's kind of where this infrastructure question gets most acute, right? Uh, what Rio had done, the biggest change to Rio long term was the subway that they put in. Okay. And the subway is gleaming and great and very efficient. It runs through the safest neighborhoods. I took it at 1130 at night in a city that you have to be alert most of the time. And I felt totally fine. So I think that will help because of Rio's geography, where they chose to put the park was very out of the way. Mm. They didn't take a less well-to-do central part of the city. They put it way west. So I think it's going to end up becoming a different suburb rather than rejuvenating some of the more rundown parts of Rio. At the dock downtown, which was a no-go zone, rat-infested, dangerous, that was transformed. That's where the Olympic flame was. There's the Museum of Tomorrow. I think that will become a strollable waterfront for the Cariocas that isn't beach, and I loved that. That was one of my favorite things, and it was throbbing with people, and not just foreign people. That, to me, felt the bit where the Cariocas were like, oh, we've taken back a bit of our city through the Olympics, and we've got this. Yeah, I do think that's one of the things that 
the cities that do invest, it sounds to me like they did, at least to some extent, in infrastructure that will support tourism as well as the local economy for a while. That's kind of a win. I, I saw this in Turin did the same thing. They built a subway. And yes, they built a big park that kind of, you know, was not worth the investment, you know, long term. But still, that subway is still there and it's really good and it serves both residents and tourists and it helps get people downtown where the businesses are. So it may seem like a small thing when they're doing it, but long term it helps the city. And let's not forget, the Olympics is a giant ad. You are essentially on the front page of every newspaper, on the splash page of every website. It's Rio, Rio, Rio for two weeks. Everyone talks about Brazil. So it does have an impact, even if people don't fly to Brazil straight away. I'm sure the awareness of Rio is sky high in across So do the you think it made more people interested in going to Rio? Or do you think some of the bad press that we've talked about, you know, the Zika, the water problems, the the, the danger, you know, you and I have talked about this, just the, the security element of it. Do you think that raised people's awareness of that? Or do you think it raise people's awareness of the city in a good way? That's a great question. I think Rio is so visually superb and sumptuous. And Copacabana Beach is just the sexiest place in the world. You know, you walk down there and you just, your hips sway a little bit and everyone's in really skimpy clothing selling beach snacks. And you feel like you're on the Baywatch remake set, but with hotter people. So <laughs> it does make you want to go there. Hotter I, than The Rock? Hotter than hotter even than The Rock. Wait, oh which Baywatch are we talking about? The new Baywatch, not the old Baywatch. I don't know. I don't know if there's anyone hotter than David Hasselhoff. <laughs> but what I would say about Rio is... I think it is for the adventurous traveler because it's a long way and you do have to have your wits about you. What I would say, we also talked about this, Catherine, I found Uber transformative for travel because in a city like Rio where you need to be on alert, you suddenly have the ability in your the palm of your hand to affordably summon an escape route. It's like being having a bat phone and saying... Baban, I need you now. And him just appearing and whisking you out of there. So you're suddenly much more reassured. And I think it makes you feel more comfortable being adventurous. I agree with that. I feel like I went in places across South Africa that I might not have gone to just because of Uber. I went to Durban and felt like I could go from point A to B and I knew I was going to get there and I could, it was a safe ride. And I think a uh, a lot of what we talk about with Brazil, it had mixed press, right? And there were a couple, Brazil was on um, our list of top 16 places to go in 2016, along with Istanbul, Paris, a few other cities that had some very bad press this year for good reasons. Uh, I think the third biggest story we had of the year was this conversation about fear, traveling in the face of fear. And uh, Catherine, you wrote a really nice piece about Istanbul in the wake of the bombings, multiple bombings, unfortunately. And there were the Paris attacks at Bataclan in late November as well. We just celebrated the one year anniversary of those. But I think you know, a lot of us continue to go there, and that is something that we continue to preach, you know, get out there. You, you're kind of giving in to a degree to the terror, but the terrorism is real. So I don't know, what would you guys say at this point in the year? Are you telling people to go to these places? Are you happy that we told them to go to these well, places? Well, I, I, I had dinner with a, a hospitality friend of mine who owns restaurants, hotels, and bars in Paris, and he said that 2016 was the worst year they've ever had. And although you think people are going to rally and think, screw the terrorists, we're going to show them they don't change our way of life, people are afraid. And they had a very tough year. They were already having a tough year. And then the British, who were a great funnel market on the Eurostar to Paris, found their currency 
devalued enormously overnight in the summer, that cut down more numbers for Paris. And he said to me, he said, look, the five-star hotels, the ultra-luxury hotels, were running at 20% occupancy this year when they're normally at 80 or 85. Now, that tells us that, again, they need our money, and we, we maybe need to, a great way of being brave is spending our money there. I would sort of agree with that, and I, but I think it doesn't even take that much bravery. I think it just takes a little bit of consciousness, like a layperson's consciousness of statistics, right? Like the question you asked, Laura, was do we feel good about sending people to these places? And I say absolutely because if you look at what's actually happened, there was a wave at the end of 2015 in this sort of last couple of months that sort of freaked everybody out, and then there were a few more in the first half of 2016 that reinforced that fear. Additionally, you had these. This is kind of a separate story, but it's related. You had the sort of political changes in Britain, the political changes in the United States, what's going on in Europe, which I think is in a mixed place right now. That all of which seem to make people wonder what the state of affairs is going to be in these various countries in terms of visiting them, but also uh, the, the immigration state, those kinds of things. But I think that mixed in with all that. That's mostly hype. It, it's not hype because the events that occurred are not real. It's hype in the sense that the events that occurred were not in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, they were irrelevant to travelers. Even when in Turkey, for example, a couple of cases, they were directed at travelers because the impact on millions and millions and millions of travelers to these places is very small. And I don't mean to diminish it for the people who were affected by it, but it's kind of like saying, I'm not going to drive my car because, you know, 30,000 people got killed in car accidents last year. And we don't say that. None of us say it. We wouldn't even think of saying that. We still get in our cars. But I am curious if any listeners had plans to travel to places that they canceled because of of some political situation. Because it's easy for us, because this is our job, so we have to go to these places whether we like it or not. And it's a great privilege, but anyone who travels for vacation or even optionally for work, I'd be very curious to hear if anyone wants to share their stories, how that changed things for them. I mean, it's interesting for me, I guess, um a lot of people tell me, because they know that I've spent a lot of time in Israel and that I have family who I visit there, a lot of people have said, oh my gosh, like you've been to Israel, I am terrified to go there. And it always surprises me a little bit. And I remember that, oh gosh, other people don't really know what they're getting into. They don't know what Israel is like every day. And they don't realize how relatively safe Tel Aviv is compared to other parts of the country. So I try to have that mindset when I answer these kinds of questions. I think it's important to talk about, it's not just, hey, I'm afraid of this crazy fluke once in a lifetime event happening. If you combine that with things like, I don't feel comfortable speaking the language, or I don't have local contacts who can give me a heads up about where to go and where not to go. I think all of that can add up and make people feel a little bit scared. So in that case, with the Israel example, I can say, oh, I have this great friend in Tel Aviv who would love to show you around. And I think it's stuff like that. It's those relationships and being able to ask someone locally who you trust. I think that's what makes a difference for people. But I think it's also not kind of what you're talking about, Brad. It's not an isolated thing. This year was a crazy year. We didn't only have terrorism. We had political instability with terrorism. We had a major disease with terrorism. Like the World Tourism Foundation did a study and it said, okay, if you have a terrorist attack, it's going to take that country 13 months from that event to reset back to normal numbers. But it's going to take a country, I think it was 27 months 
for political unrest. So when you add all the stuff in the mix, it's not a clear reset button because these attacks so have political happened. unrest was was more impactful. It was more. Um, disease was 21 months. An environmental disaster was 24 months. Yeah. But so I think that actually, makes sense. Yeah. I mean, political instability, it can be something like what Mark was talking about. Mm -hmm. Maybe the money goes down and people just can't afford to travel. It can affect a lot of these sort of tertiary things that we don't necessarily think of as people being too scared to buy a plane ticket. And it's ongoing. I mean, we're talking about one-off events versus contagions, right? Yeah. Things that we have to manage or that countries have to manage somehow. And I think with Zika, Zika was the post-Ebola, right? So different parts of the world have been suffering through this. And I really hope the countries rebound soon. I was going to come back to this earlier because I'm interested in an update on Zika. First of all, both in, Mark, you've talked about Rio, and I'm also wondering about Miami and some of the other Caribbean locations. What did people do to try to get Zika under control in those places? Well, very controversially in Miami Beach, the mayor blitzed the uh, Miami Beach with a chemical that, as I understand it, isn't permitted in all of the developed world for insect control. So it was quite a controversial decision. I have a lot of close friends in Miami Beach. I used to go down there all the time. And they were very angry about the spraying because the spraying took place, it had to take place in the mornings because of the insect life cycle. So it meant that when you woke up and you were putting your kids ready for school, that was when the chemicals were at their strongest. So Miami Beach reacted very intensely. I think it made the local mayor very unpopular with the locals. When I was in Havana in May, I saw what I thought was a fire. And I, uh, I found a woman, a local who spoke English and asked her, hey, do you know what's, what's going on down there? Is it safe? And she said, that's not a fire. They're spraying for mosquitoes because white people visit. And it made me think, how, what would they have done differently if they didn't think it was going to affect tourism? It was still going to be a problem. Zika was still an issue. People were definitely still thinking about it. But was it a different part of the city that they chose because they were picking an area specifically that tourists were going to go to? And did they only do that or did they – I mean, there are sort of so many right. questions like embedded in that. One, one is – did they only give treatment to the places that the white people were going to, the tourists were going to go to? And number two, did they just, you know, blitz it because of that and not care what that was going to do long term to the locals? You know, and those two things are not unrelated because maybe they actually did something that was reasonable or something that was proximal to what Miami did, but they didn't do it for everybody. You know, yeah. and that, and so it's just all kinds of weirdness wrapped up. I think in that. Miami Beach will be a good, or, or Miami as a whole will be a good one to watch as we go into 2017, right? Because they had four zones that had Zika. The last one was lifted today. It's still a yellow zone, so if you're planning to get pregnant or if you are pregnant, you shouldn't go there still. But as Mark said, they reacted very quickly and, you know, their tourist numbers dropped. And that's Miami Beach's big thing, right? We're going into to high season. We're going into colder weather where people want to go to Miami Beach. They want to escape. So it'll be interesting to see if they rebound with the numbers that they want to. It was also interesting that they lifted those in like in Wynwood Arts District maybe three, two, three months before Art Basel. Mm -hmm. You know, they they made some strategic moves. Well, the Miami's CDC economy is, is so powered by tourism and it's so important. It, it is the backbone, especially of Miami Beach's economy, so they can't mess around. But I do wonder if that spraying was a much as much about the optics of being aggressive, sort of seeming mm. tough on Zika versus whether you need to be tough on Zika. And I understand that you do need to send a message you're tackling it. But as we're learning, Zika seems to be slightly less sort of mosquito Ebola than we worried it might be. Yeah. When I was when I was growing up, I feel like 
this might be anecdotal, but I feel like sunscreen was an optional thing that you brought on vacation with you. And there was kind of a turning point. Maybe it was the hole in the ozone layer over Australia. It became a bigger news story. People saw how it affected you. Now I think sunscreen is required. Everybody knows about it. Everyone brings it with them. There are all of these different ways. I wonder if Zika is the thing that does that for bug spray, that it's no longer just, oh, if I have space in my bag, let me throw some in. It just isn't essential wherever you're going. Yeah, that's really interesting because even during the Rio Olympics, weren't they putting bug spray bottles on every bedside in hotels? I feel Again. like- not at my hotel. <laughs> Where but did you a, stay? <laughs> I stayed at a very a perfectly serviceable hotel, but probably the least. My memories of 2016 are ra- rather shaped by the uncomfortable mattress, and I can sleep anywhere, and I didn't really sleep for 10 days in that hotel. However, everything's an experience. I would say, <laughs> I would say that the challenge with bug spray, of course, is if you're doing carry-on only how do you find room for another liquid? And I actually bought some off tissues that were soaked with spray that you could rub yourself with so that I could always have bug spray with me without it taking up carry-on room. Yeah, or is it going to start being an amenity that more hotels have in the room or that you can find in more public places? Like I remember a couple years ago, there were always... um, hand sanitizers everywhere in airports. Uh, After bird flu and stuff like that, it became a bigger thing. And now you just get used to seeing it everywhere and you don't have to worry that you won't be able to find it where you're going. Back to your question again, Laura, is like, you know, where do we send people? Where do we tell people to go? This is different for me than the question of terrorism or political unrest or whatever, because if you are in the class of people who is trying to get pregnant or might get pregnant, or if you are a potential sexual partner for somebody like that, then I think mosquitoes are pervasive in some places. They're very hard to defend against. You can do all these precautions, but one bite is potentially you know, a problem. So I have a different feeling about recommending that somebody, I would say to somebody who's in that class, don't go if it's a yellow zone or a red zone. But I would say to anybody else, if you're not in that class, then you should go because these are great places and you can get really good. Well- And you can come to us for our recommendations, which we typically get through travel, like the State Department travel warnings and the CDC. That's kind of our endpoint, right? So when the CDC says Miami or Wynwood in Miami is clear, great. If the State Department issues a warning or an alert, and it's important to know the difference between the two. um, What is the difference? Yeah. Catherine, do you have that off the top of your head? Condé Nast Traveler, Zika correspondent. (laughs) I think alert is just much shorter and it's for so it's for a shorter period of time and it's usually more localized than it is for a warning. Warning is definitely broader. It's going to go on for a longer period of time. So warning is a yellow article. light and an alert is a red light. Yeah. Yeah. You know where they don't have Zika? Iceland. No, well, they not yet. Well, the, the, can we talk about Iceland for a second? Because we please, did recommend we go fine. to talk go there Iceland. this year. Okay. They don't have mosquitoes. Because Iceland Zika hasn't gotten have enough I know, but attention. Like, are we done? Are, are we, we done, done with Iceland? Is 2016 the end of Iceland? No, I don't think I don't it think will. I, I mean, I don't think it will be, but I also think, like, for people like us, we're going to get tired of talking about it. But you know? it, it does dovetail into a great story that Catherine wrote this year that was very popular about places telling people to stay home and being at capacity. Yeah. And Iceland has this struggle that its infrastructure can't cope with. We talked about this in, in, in Travelog a few weeks ago. It can't cope with how successful its tourism campaign has been. And looking at the different places that are increasingly essentially cherry-picking the visitors they have, will Iceland have to 
put a bit of a constraint on its visitors because there's nowhere for them to stay. Well, well they stopped the $99 flights. There's going to be $69 flights next there year. There are Norwegian. That's a whole other podcast. Uh, do we do the different countries and cities, how are they limiting tourists? Is it a permit that you have to pay for? Is it a lottery that you enter? Are they a lot? Is it for people who make more money? Do they now have more access to Bhutan? You know? No, I mean, Bhutan has a thing where you have to register with a specific tourism country. So everything they say, you have to go through one of our licensed tourist companies, which are going to you know, be a base rate of, I don't know what it is, 3,500. So you're automatically going to give a certain cut of a certain cut of that is going to go to the government. For Iceland, they were talking about limiting visitors at certain tourist sites because their big question was, well, how many people can go to the Gulf Foss waterfall? with it still being enjoyable, you know? So that's something that they're still studying. Iceland also has a case with Airbnb that I think a lot of people are doing where they're saying, okay, you know, you can't rent out your house more than 30 days a year, um, or you have to rent out your whole house. And I know, Lilith, you did a story on this in New York because we have... This is a big story yeah, this, this year, is a big I think. Story. Yeah, it's, it's, big it's definitely story. more Airbnb is another that. big one. Yeah. What, I, what, what's the state of that now, Lilith, in New York? Right now, what's going on? So, well, it's being appealed, so we'll see. Uh, but I believe... So, backstory is yeah. New York State passed a law that said you couldn't rent your place out for less than 30 days, right? For more than 30 more, days. Sorry, more than 30... You couldn't engage in a rental that was under 30 days. Right. Basically aimed at Airbnb. Yeah, and it also, some people get around it by, for example, if I'm out of town, I have a house sitter. And if they're not paying me, then it doesn't count. And I think a lot of people work the angle of, oh, this person's just my friend who's crashing in my apartment while I'm out of town and getting the mail and watering my plants. But what prompted the New York case, I think, was a lot of people, I was one of these people, complained about safety issues related to Airbnb. And it hasn't just been in New York City, but there were a couple of prominent cases. There were people saying, my neighbor airbnb their apartment and the person who was staying there broke into another apartment and stole stuff from us. Or there were sexual assault cases. Or there were examples of apartments being totally trashed by tenants. Or the apartment building's front door key is in common circulation because once you have a key to an apartment, you can just dupe it and then you get into the building anytime you want. Or if there's a passcode, you just tell people what the passcode is. Do you, have, has this come up at any? We all live in New York. Has this come up at any of your buildings? Yeah, yeah. It, it came up in ours for sure. There was a big fight amongst the um, residents and the owners yeah. of the building. I feel the like in, in you know in a in a New York scenario, I think this is an interesting thing as Airbnb works out what it is because I think it's still trying to understand where it sits in the market. In some of the cities where it's done very well, the Parises, the New Yorks, the San Francisco's, those are apartment buildings. And I feel like I wouldn't want Airbnb banned, but I would want the requirement to be that you essentially have to post to your neighbors if there's a stranger living in your apartment so that they know. Some places require you. And the thing is that Airbnb can regulate itself, but... Other cities want to go over that and say that we don't think Airbnb's restrictions are specific enough. So, for example, I think it's New Orleans where if you Airbnb your place, you have to get a permit from the city. And that requires going through all the same things that a hotel operator would have to do. You have to take a fire safety course. You have to put up information in the dwelling about fire exits and emergency escapes and, you know, nearest contact numbers, stuff like that. But so, can I just be devil's like I'll be the I'll be the I don't know what libertarian voice on this, because as a resident of a building and having been on the board and all that, all that stuff is a shakedown on the part of the city. 
You know, like all those codes are basically ways for companies to be stood up and being paid thousands of dollars a year for almost no service, for almost no real sort of thing that they're delivering to I you. I think at least it gives you a form of repercussion. If, you know, if you're the person who's affected by this, at least there's a municipal agency there's or board that you can kind, go yeah. over. Yeah. Okay. You know, if, if something but try got stolen, to redress yourself with one of these municipal agencies one time and see how long that takes. Hey, I tried to do that with Uber once. I'm still waiting. <laughs> That's another, that was, an, I mean, segue. That's another <laughs> big story for the year. And you talked about it earlier. I feel like both Airbnb and Uber, is this some kind of tipping point for those? Have they so embedded themselves in people's travel habits that they are now part of the standard infrastructure in the same way that taxis, public transportation, airlines, and hotels are? I mean, I have to say absolutely, but also realize we have a U.S.-centric point of view. In the U.K., you might not use Uber, you might use Halio. Or, uh, you know, other countries have developed their own versions of these ideas, and I think what's here to stay is the sharing economy. I think in our industry specifically, we still have wonderful hotels we cover constantly, but our readers are splitting the difference now. They are going to both hotels and Airbnbs. So I think it's there are more options and everyone loves more options. But I don't I don't know if these companies specifically are I mean they're taking the lead and they are the biggest players in the game. But I like what they're doing to inspire other cities around the world to, you know, get creative. And I think you know, sorry, Brad, I was going to say, I think one of the advantages, one of the built-in appeals to Airbnb, a friend of mine went to Valencia this year. She's a yoga teacher in London. She went to Valencia in Spain. And her Facebook posts were largely about how lovely her hosts were and how they ended up cooking her a paella. And she said, I can't believe I actually had real paella in my house. And they told her which beach to go to. And they ended up saying, you know, we'll just come with you. We'll, go, we'll spend the day at the beach. And I think that over and above the convenience and the cheapness and all of those things that seem to be why Airbnb is so appealing. Actually, the benefit isn't renting an entire apartment. The benefit is that, oh, I might end up renting from someone who's so nice that I basically get a free concierge to share their city. And I think that is where Airbnb has a USP that it hasn't necessarily exploited as relentlessly as it should have done. Well, I think it's trying to with Airbnb trips right now. I mean, that, that towards the end of the year, that was a big story in our industry. And, you know, they want to be a, I just talked to the CTO, they want to be a trips company, not just a home share company. They're going to be a trips company going forward. Right. And then it's interesting seeing what the hotel industry has done in response, because I think at first there was this natural sort of, I'm not sure if this idea is really going to take off. Nobody knew what the app was when it first launched. And then they're sort of we got to the backlash of, well, that's terrible. Why would you want to do that? Hotels are better. And now they've settled into this really interesting, okay, what is it about Airbnb that people like? How can we implement that into our hotel? So I hear all the time about hotels that are trying to get more locals to be involved in the hotel that are leading smaller group programs instead of like big 25-person bus initiatives, getting to know local residents in the area, try small restaurants. So I do think it's an interesting interplay back and forth with but each other. don't you think, and I, that's a great point, I think that... Curio, which is Hilton's new quirky collection of great hotels, and True, these unique properties, which are all set up where they are expressly, you get your points, and you know that the, the bathroom will be clean, and you know that check-in will be flawless, but they are teed up so that the staff tell you where their favorite dive bar is, and it it is a little bit of sort of Airbnb's knock-on, and I'd never realized that that was probably the through-line late. 
I think the other thing that these two have done, and we've talked about this on podcasts before, both Airbnb and Uber have opened up markets that were difficult for one reason or another before and have made travel to those places easier. You were talking about it earlier, Mark. I think, and I've had this experience just this year, two times that were really pronounced in that way, which is I was in Detroit and Uber became a way of getting all over the place really easily. You had to wait a little bit longer for it, but it came and it took you wherever you wanted to go. And that really changed the dynamic for me. It made the place feel navigable and, and uh, accessible. And the same thing in LA. LA, if you're out there, the cab service are terrible. It's just it's just abysmal. I, took a, I made the mistake of taking a cab from the hotel to the airport. I'll never do it again in Los Angeles because the Ubers were so much more efficient, so much better at arriving on time, knowing where they were going and getting me there. It's a different story in New York, but I think in, in Los Angeles, really, Uber made it thoughtless. thoughtless. Uber has helped. I, I wrote a lot about cocktails, and Uber has helped really turbocharge the craft cocktail scene in LA because it is much easier to go to the Walker Inn in Koreatown, which is this amazing bar, and drink all evening and not worry about, oh, oh, I had another cocktail. Oh, how do I get... I'll leave the car in the garage and my friend will drive me home. And... Uber has had interesting infrastructure knock-ons, and when I see new bars and my friends in LA opening new bars, I think, oh, that's because your clientele is acting a little differently. And Airbnb, I'm going to go to London, and I took your advice. And But it was. it was London is a city where it's difficult to find the right matrix of price, location, and sort of style for a hotel. Airbnb gives you a lot more options. It just opens the city up to you in a different kind of way. I think it also speaks to the fact that the idea of who is traveling isn't always who we think it is. Hotels are great if you're single or a couple, if you only need one room, if you're not planning to cook any of your own meals because you don't have any specific dietary needs. But get beyond that. And, you know, I had a group of friends visiting from Iceland a couple weeks ago. They brought their whole office over. There were 10 of them. They didn't want to stay in three or four hotel rooms all on the same hall. They wanted to stay together. So they just Airbnb to place and they could do that. Or, you know, multi-generational families that don't want to pay for a hotel suite or maybe there's not one available. Maybe you keep kosher and what's really important to you is staying in a place that has two sinks so that you can do that. And I think it's forcing us to think about different kinds of accommodations and how we serve those other kinds of travelers. Let's take a minute and look forward to 2017. And I'll give you, I'll, as a jumping off point, Catherine, there was a man bites, couple of man bites dog moments this year in travel in the sense that there were other countries warning their citizens about travel to the United States, including an episode after the election. Can you talk just for a minute about those stories? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we're seeing an interesting response from other countries that we've talked about or warned people about. Who issued the warning just after the election? Turkey, were, yeah, it? it was after the election, but more often than not, they're also referencing the gun violence in the U.S. Yeah, that's kind of the biggest reason that those warnings come up. Yeah, especially in the Bahamas in particular, they flat out said that if you are dark skinned, there are certain parts of the United States where recently there has been an uptick in violence around race issues and that that's something to consider when you're planning a trip. There was also sort of an encouragement, you know, if there's a protest, like we suggest that you not join it so that no one gets the wrong idea. But the language, yeah, it wasn't really about the election. It was about other stuff that was going on. I mean, I did write a piece about how travel will change after the election. Um, and just because the two biggest tour groups that come to the US are from Canada and Mexico. And so it'll be interesting to see in 2017 how that changes just based on the rhetoric 
you know, that we've heard. But I would also add what's fascinating to me, I just got an alert for a transatlantic fare that is the cheapest price on a transatlantic flight I've ever seen, which was $470 round trip. Because British people no longer are 50% of the traffic transatlantically, mm-hmm. and their pound, or our pound, their pound, I'm not British anymore, their pound does not have the buying power. You can't go on a shopping spree in America as they used to love doing. So I also think what's interesting looking forward is that transatlantic route, which used to be a real cash cow for all the airlines that flew it, because you got British people going one way, Americans going the other, that now has half of the clientele. What does that mean? Oh, I mean, I've had, in the last three months, I've had two separate flights that have been under $500 to cross over to Europe. And it's a mix of these uh, low-cost, long-haul carriers that are getting in the game. Norwegian got approval to fly to the U.S., to more U.S. markets. That is a huge story for this year, too. We also saw um, Virgin in Alaska, Virgin American Alaska merge. We're not quite sure how that's going to play out, but the price wars are massive right now. We joke about the $99 fares to Iceland that have been going through Wow Air, that have been going Iceland Air startly over program, but it is so cheap and easy to get it to the It has never U- been. It feels like the early 90s when there was a, a 199 round trip from New York to LA that everyone sort of references as this mythical fare. But I do think at the moment we're in a stage where most of the airlines are in quite healthy financial positions and they are flexing their muscles a little and working out what they can charge. Basic economy has emerged as an offering that United is joining Delta and American and offering Delta and American are introducing premium economy, whether it's really premium economy, who knows. But there's all these ways that airlines are kind of slicing and dicing, which is very different. One thing I think is interesting. So uh, in 2017, I'm planning a trip to Brussels. And, you know, Mark talked about Paris before and how much money they've been losing out on with tourism. What I find interesting is what happens to a city that already doesn't get as much tourism when they are affected by something like terrorism. The hotels in Brussels right now that I'm looking at are really inexpensive. My flight wasn't that expensive. So I think that Paris will be able to rebound a little bit more quickly because it's still Paris. But seeing how a less popular city that doesn't get as much respect like Brussels, this could really hurt them in a different way. What about Cuba? We haven't talked about Cuba at all. That was a big story this year, expected to be a big story next year. I think Cuba will be our 2017 story. I, yeah. it's, I think people are only just starting to test the waters with it this year. We had a couple people on staff, myself, Lilith, who uh, Lilith went on the cruise, the cruise line Fathom that has since been disbanded. They're just finishing up their run, but they're testing, literally testing the waters. And there are two waters. new companies that announced this week that they're going to be running itineraries between the U.S. and Cuba. I mean, that... They were ready. I would be curious for the listeners, is Cuba really kind of front and center for a place that you want to go? Because I feel like it's so accessible. It's so nearby. It's so short to get to from almost anywhere other than the sort of Pacific Northwest. Is everyone dying to go to Cuba? Because our perception, I think, is that there is this kind of pent up demand. Are people wanting to go there? I don't know. I mean... I'm going to be the devil's advocate here and say not as much as officials thought, right? Because American is going to cut its flights by 25% in 2017. They've already said that. So 110 daily flights to Cuba, it's a lot. That's a lot. Right? Or was it 110 daily? But anyway, airlines are going to trim this, I think, because they're not seeing the planes full. You know, and Havana is just starting to become a destination that's opened up to flights. You know, Delta's going there now. 
But as a devil's advocate, I, I don't think that as many people are going as they thought. And part of that is probably because of, of the 12 rules, you know, of reasons people have to go. And we talked about that a little bit about how maybe Airbnb will, will open that up. Yeah, it's funny. Um, in the last year, those 12 rules have kind of morphed a little, too. The people-to-people excursion is the biggest uh, window for people to travel through. But there's also one now that's support the Cuban people that travelers are taking some liberties with. And when I talked to Airbnb, I was asking them if going on an Airbnb trip in Havana, if that constituted a people-to-people tour. Because if it does, you can just go on JetBlue's site or whichever airline is flying to Havana, buy your ticket, click the box that says people to people, and you have your foolproof plan. You have your plan where you come back to the U.S. because the U.S. is where you're getting checked, if anywhere. Right. They're keeping track. But also, let's remember about Cuba, and I, as a European, I think it's important to remember that Cuba was not the hermit kingdom. It was not North Korea. It was off limits to the largest nearby market. But Canadians and Europeans have been going to Cuba for years. So... I think also that people went to Cuba and perhaps hadn't been, it hadn't been explained clearly enough that you weren't stepping into virgin territory. It was just new for Americans. And obviously that's a, that's a big thing. But, but it's still, I mean, and I, you know, we've talked about this before too, but, you know, my wife has been there before. She is Italian. She went with her Italian passport. And yet when she went, it was still a place that you had to navigate in a particular way. So she had to get a government guide. The government guide had to take her everywhere. And some of those things are still in place. And I think one of the things that makes it difficult, because we're planning another trip back there now, is there is a lack of clarity about what you can actually do, what you can get away with, how the infrastructure will be available to you, which is, just to wrap it up, a great thing for us because we can break that down for people and tell them, and I think we should, I think this is, in terms of coverage, this is a big one for us because as people are going, as more and more people are going, we can help figure those things out. We can help them figure those things out. I don't know if this was true for you, Laura, but for me, certainly anecdotally, after I came back, I think even my friends, I'd had a few friends who had been there, most of them who hold dual citizenship and were able to go on maybe a Canadian or a British passport. Everyone wanted to get the download from me about should I go? I've been thinking about it, but can you do this? Can you do that? What was it like? What was the food like? Did you have a choice in restaurants? There were so many questions. I think what we may see happen is sort of the first guard of really adventurous travelers and people who want to cross it off the list and people who like being first are going to go. They're going to come back and how they explain it to their friends and what kind of a review they give the country is going to affect who goes next and if they go. I think that's absolutely right. We're all ambassadors, right? And at this point, people want to get there. The refrain I hear constantly is people want to get there before McDonald's does. How big that window is, I don't know. Uh, We have domestic U.S. domestic hotels going down there now. We have cruise lines going down there now. So we'll see. McDonald's and Starbucks next, maybe. There's already an American-owned hotel. Great. Okay, let's wrap it up, guys. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. You can visit us at cntraveler.com, where you can find stories about these things and many, many other things, including 2017. We've got all that coming out this week. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. We are at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please tweet at us. Send us feedback. Give us a review on iTunes. Let us know how we're doing, what you want to hear about in 2017. And um, tell people how they can find you on the internet. Lilith. Uh, so I'm at Lilith Marcus, L-I-L-I-T-M-A-R-C-U-S on Twitter. And Lilith goes on Instagram. 
And if you want to talk to me, I'm Mark J. Elwood on Twitter. And I realize I should say thank you, Divya, for your story about Valencia. I always want to credit people whose lives and vacations I pimp out. <laughs> and I'm KJ Lugrave on Twitter. I'm Danon825 on Twitter and Laura underscore Redman on Instagram. Thanks to all of you guys for showing up today. And thanks to Brett on the boards and mixing us up. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everybody.